I think I see some uh, nice uh, awards in the film magazine in the background. Oh, have they snuck in, have they? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are your holidays? Very good, very good. We had a, a rather wet time, um, but it was uh, an acquired time as well. Um, it seems that all of our family started to scarper, you know, left, right and centre out of Sydney and uh, doing their own thing. So we were pretty quiet, but we didn't mind that at all. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, good to have you back again one more time. Um, really excited to chat about Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Uh, you know, And we've sort of talked about it a few times in earlier episodes, but... You know, I always, it's funny, I've always thought Jurassic Park was the film that inspired me to be who I am today, um, you know, as, as a film director. But I think, I'm not sure if I saw Dead Poet Society before Jurassic Park or after, but I think that had a big hand in it in terms of the premise of arts versus, you know, the traditional way of studying and it's it's such an incredible film at all levels, from performances to cinematography to music to direction. Um, and, you know, late, great Robin Williams of Oh, Captain, yeah. My Captain. Yeah. I think, yes, I agree totally. I think I, I, really that everybody who worked on it, from crew to talent uh, uh, and, and even in post-production, um, putting it all together, weren't affected by it. I think it's a very powerful comment, but beautifully realistic about it all. Uh, and I, I think over the years, it's almost one of the films that people keep relating to. And they say, well, you did Dead Poet Society. And I said, well, I did a little bit. I, I tried to help the best, you know, but it, it affected them. And uh, I, I just, I, I love it for that. And I think that... Uh, you know, Peter's interpretation of Tom Schulman's fantastic writing in the beginning. Um, as you know, directors had uh, always try to search the script that they've got um, and search for uh, the way of doing it that's got lovely deep meanings that can extend whatever the written word is, visually or with sound or music. And we went through it, I remember, in pre-production and, and uh, the office going crazy because Peter was in such demand for a million questions. As you know, uh, wardrobe, makeup, hair, locations, what are we going to do? And he'd say, no, he'd say for this week from 8 a.m. to 12 midday Johnny and I are going to go through the script and we read it and read it and read it and any thoughts Peter is as you know uh is like that he searches everybody's brain not just the actors but technicians and and everybody everybody who's involved in his film in a way he searches their brains for ideas, for thoughts, for little motivational ideas, inspirations that he might get. And uh, for that whole week, which drove the office mad, we went through it. And in the end, it was a lovely thing where on the last day, he said, you know, 
Tom Shulman's script's fantastic. Let's go shoot it. And we literally didn't, uh, he didn't reassemble or rewrite anything. Later, of course, working with the actors, as always, there were some lovely inputs from the actors, um, which were readily accepted by Peter, as always. And uh, uh, some of them we reshot quickly. Um, and so that, I think, was a lovely, lovely compliment to Tom Shulman for his wonderful writing and original concept of a script um, to Peter's ability to absorb all of the ideas from there, maintain that balance of writing, and with the actors then mature it into the film that it, it ended up being. So I think it's lovely compliments all around, really. Yeah. And it's interesting that you worked back to back on two of the most inspiring and meaningful and obviously successful films critically and commercially, Dead Poet Society and the year before that, Rain Man. Um, right? If, am I correct in assuming that? Yeah. Yeah. And having those two films, not that they're similar, but in terms of just, you know, the story and they were both up for Oscars, like a lot of Oscars. I don't know if they won. Uh, I'm sure they did win some, but I don't know which one. It's been a while since I've sort of kept track of that. But having to work on things like that, the meaningful projects, not that the other ones are not, but you know, it's such such depth to it. Like English poetry, like William Wordsworth, John Keats. I mean, I, I remember I was in grade 11 or 12 English at the time when I probably saw it. And that's when I was learning about all these great poets as well. Had you, did you, you know, as a cinematographer, were you familiar with their work or if not, did you study their work just to understand the storytelling from this perspective of, of a cinematographer? Ah, uh, very interesting, interesting question. Um, I always found in the earlier days working with Peter in the Australian Renaissance of film, film as it, it came back into Australia, we started making films. The the ones that I was involved with, mainly as a camera operator in those earlier days, um, and I, maybe it's because of that that I grew to love watching actors strut their stuff. I loved listening to the director uh, discussing the moment for that shot within that entire uh, screenplay, how it fitted in and, and you know, the modulation of it. Um, I loved listening to all that. I don't know why. I never wanted to be an actor. And uh, I'm terrified of being in front of cameras, actually. But uh, I loved watching and analysing, well, not analysing, but listening to the director's uh, instructions to an actor who then would interpret that. And as the camera operator, I felt that I was in there knowing and hoping I'm realising uh, as much of the emotion the director wants out of the actor, I felt, should come out of should come out of the camera, and I grew to love that. Um, and and I was so fortunate through my life to actually end up working with some of the great actors of that whole era. 
um, and being able to watch them strut their stuff. And I hope that what I learnt from that was that I could help a little bit uh, in some way or form. And when I became uh, a lighting cameraman, I shifted across finally and became lighting. I couldn't give up operating. I had to keep operating. It caused a bit of a stir um, internationally because some uh, countries, particularly America at that time, didn't accept uh, the director of photography doing their own operating. Um, there were unions involved and whatnot. Um, and we ran into that trouble on Dead Poet Society. Um, so by selection of scripts or that I was offered, uh, came down to choosing a script like Rain Man, Dustin Hoffman, who wouldn't go to work with him and watch him strut his stuff. Who wouldn't do that? But uh, so I did that film and I loved doing that. I watched, I watched, I, th I think, two actors uh, interpreting the written screenplay and bringing it to life as two characters. I remember Dustin saying to me a week before, we st he used to hover around the office all the time, and, and I said, you don't have to be here, Dustin. You go home and play tennis or talk to your agent or something. And he, he'd say, no, no, I, I love it. I love all this bullshit that you people talk in pre-production. I love listening to that. And I thought, isn't that funny? Because I love watching the mm -hmm. actors strut their stuff. And, and you know, so there was, um, so after that, uh, you know, I we did that film and I loved watching those two top actors just getting together and making the film and uh, and watching, uh, uh, you know, the whole thing develop. Then to be asked to do Dead Poets was, was no issue in that. I mean, Peter Weir um, and doing a film, any film with, with Peter was, was you always said yes. Um, so I did that. And it, was, again, was a lovely example of, of a beautifully written script um, interpreted by Peter and honed by it with the actors um, to create the film that was created. So I think it's basically the answer to that is I just I love it watching the relationship of actors to directors say to a written script and how they interpret that and how they present that in front of the cameras. And maybe I hope I helped in some way with the camera uh, in various technical ways, maybe. Um, I know that uh, Dead Poets, we shot it very quickly. We did a lot of... I was on one camera then too, which uh, um, uh, even though in Rain Man I found multiple cameras, somehow Dead Poets was a single camera coverage. To do that, we had to move very quickly and I was operating... Um, the film was very funny. The film before with Peter, we had to use an operator. And to be honest, that upset Peter immensely because I had been operating for Peter in Australia with, with the great Russell Boyd as DP. And uh, we got on well there and he was asking me to light and I couldn't operate. And uh, so with Dead Poets Society, we we found a camera operator in the area that had a broken leg <laughs> and he couldn't work. So we booked him up and the union agreed and we booked him up and because he wasn't getting work and he was a bit tight, 
uh, and we offered to take him on uh, and left him in the wheelchair and I did the operating. So we got around the union back then. Uh, in that, that is awesome. Yeah, so I was, I was able to operate for Peter. So the combination, I think, of lighting and operating, I always found was an incredible help in a way to actors that uh, I was close enough because I was the operator to them to be able to talk to them as uh, as a technician in a way and as the lighting cameraman, I could help them there. And I found that going as fast as possible helped everybody, obviously, shooting as fast as possible. Um, and it certainly, I think, helped actors stay in character was one of the main things I found through life that they often uh, mentioned at the end was that they loved the speed because it kept them in character. And I think with those boys, <clears throat> most of them were reasonably inexperienced when they started. Mm. And here was this amazing director uh, <clears throat> who took them in and made them comfortable and made them feel that, you know, really it's not a movie we're shooting. We're just recording a li lifetime of, of these boys, a life of these boys in that uh, school community. And he kept them very comfortable. And I hope that by lighting and operating and, and being uh, aware of actors' problems in front of a camera, maybe by not being too experienced or the clapperboard upsetting them, uh, things like that, that I could help keep it as comfortable as possible um, was always uh, uh, um, up front with me and, and with the crew. I'd, I'd always try and say to the crew, no noise. We, if we're lighting, don't want any noise or yelling. Just I'll quietly tell you what I want and then, you know, queer, please go off and do it as quietly as you can. Keep the actors in the, in the realm of the reality of the set, which is representing the script, because to take them out of that and create this noisy lighting film set feel, often mentally can take them out of their mode of, of, of character. And I didn't want that. I wanted them to, you know, try and help them stay in character and help them stay in a high performance zone that Peter was getting from them as much as possible by reducing the impact of filmmaking process. So I think all of that was uh, basically from the early days of just loving watching actors go from a, that person in reality to this character and realising that we can help a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Quentin Tarantino, and I could be wrong, who I heard saying that when your actors come on the set the first time, do not tell them what to do because they may bring something that you may not have seen or even thought about. And after that, you can tell them what to do, you know, if that's something that you still want. Because actors, just like anybody else, like you know, a cinematographer or a set designer or a costume designer, they will have their perspective and they will want to bring that in. And it's good to hear that because you just never know what they might bring to the table as opposed to you telling them all the time what to do. Yeah. And it was interesting that 
last week going through the the DVD and and uh, excerpts of the actors talking, and the boys did have a lot of that, and they their contribution uh, to the film by becoming the character and being, as one said, bold enough to say, I wouldn't say that, is a very yeah. major thing to say to a director. And uh, I think that Peter's wonderful uh, approach to them as performers um, and keeping them as comfortable as possible enabled them to be able to say, I don't think I'd say that. Um, I'd rather not say it or whatever they approach they had to Peter, uh, you know, even to an actor, say, the father, saying, I wasn't happy with um, the approach that I gave the performance yesterday. So Peter said, no problem, let's reshoot it. And so oh, we, wow. quickly, we quickly reshot it. So as a cameraman, I, I felt that... The essence of speed is there to say, well, you want to reshoot that scene? That was from yesterday. Okay, we had that, we had that, we had that. And go to the gapper and say quietly, remember the scene yesterday we did? We're doing it again. What for? What for? I say, don't worry about well, why. No, we're doing it again right now. Backlight up there, remember? A little soft feel, whatever, whatever. The brain was still active. So that was able to be put together very quickly. So once again, I, was, I always hoped that the speed would keep the actor in, in the performance that they wanted to present. And uh, I think in films like Rain Man, like Dead Poets Society, um, those lovely films that uh, are where performance counts heavily rather than action or, you know, some sort of form of escape um, uh, imagery that, that doesn't, you know, that lovely sheer good words, good performance um, to make a good film is is uh, wonderful to help make. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that everything was on a go, go, go style, like, you know, very, very quick. So the actor stayed in their characters. And, you know, two points, one being that even i have found or anybody else that i've talked to like when you are limited with resources and i think you and i have talked about it too or when you're doing things quick you don't second guess yourself right like you may make mistakes here and there but you're just on that speedboat and you're going 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 but what's interesting the fact that you said that that the film was shot in such a poetic way because it was a poetic film and you know with with very mellow push-ins and pull-outs and you know the three shots that come to my mind when I think of Dead Poor Society or three scenes was Seize the Day and the way that was shot you know with the students looking in to this um, all the photographs and Robin Williams leaning in and then obviously Cap Captain Oh My Captain at the end and then the poetry scene where the I, I'm assuming with a steady cam where it goes around Ethan Hawke and the timing of that and the synergy of that and the cuts of that was just so beautiful to watch. And, you know, sometimes when you're watching a camera going really, really fast, you're like, oh, that's cool. But because that the words in the script were so powerful that that remained the prominent thing as opposed to the shot overtaking the yeah. actual script. Yeah, 
Yeah. Peter was very, on that film was very much, in a way, shooting on the balls of his feet. Um, he was very often, we were shooting so fast, he, he warned me in pre-production. <clears throat> he said, Johnny, I know we're not slow, you know, from Australian training where we had low budgets, short schedules, we had to finish films in that time. There was no money to go over. Um, so it was sort of instilled in us both, actually, to to maintain um, the schedule and still make the film that Peter wanted to make. And um, he he said, I know we're not slow, but he said, I, want, I have to go re very quickly. Um, if I remember, he said, I've got eight stories to tell. I've got seven boys and a girl, and I need in the editing room to have the material to play with that. And so I have to get the material. I said, Peter, let's go. Let's go. And I think it was 21 and a half setups a day average on a single camera. And all of wow. that within the normal time. We, we didn't go yeah. in the time, if I remember, too much. Um, but a lot of it was, was in situ, a phone call on Christmas Day, I think it was. We're all still camped down in in uh, in uh, Delaware, and uh, shooting over Christmas. It all stayed there. A phone call. Oh, I think it was Christmas Day or something. Johnny, what about the crew? It's snowing. And I said, "It is, Peter. I think we'll be right. I'll ring around." And I quickly rang them all, and of course they're all huddled around their fire, and but they all agreed. Let's go. Let's go make the movie. And uh, they were all out there in the middle of the Christmas break um, and we and we shot the movie because it snowed. And and it was that sort of lovely uh, camaraderie we had with all the crew. Let's go make this movie and, and, and with the actors. Um, it, 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 to me, that's a very, very lovely way to make movies. And, and somehow, yeah. as, as you you... Uh, have said, uh, Joe, that um, that energy of speed keeps the juices running for actors, directors, like, try that, do this, what about it, what if, you know, and, and that's all, I think, a lovely part and parcel of making those kind of films, dropping dialogue. If an actor says, I'm having trouble with that line, it's a, and, and I remember Peter would say, well, don't say it. Find something else. Go keep mm. going without it, and giving them that chance because you know it can go into the editing room, um, and it can be used or it can be cut out. It, it's it's you've got to have the material to be able to play for an editor to be able to play with the emotions of that of of the film really. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you guys decided to go out and shoot in snow because that's. You know, in in the context of the film, it was such a just a you know just a, like a con opposite and juxtaposition of what was going on. It looked visually beautiful, but with the scene that was taking place was completely different, and it really really worked very very magically. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that uh, that the boys queried it maybe like, but it's in the bathroom. But it, no, wouldn't you go out into the snow? And and I suppose I might. Let's go. You know, and, and we did do three or four takes. We did lose the snow, and I, I quickly 
got the boys to check the weather forecast and they said snow clearing in our area. And I said to Peter, Peter, the snow's going to clear. And he said, quick, let's go, let's go. Let's try and get it before it stops. And it did stop. And I forget how it went now, but I think we had a, the special effects boys had snow available in their truck or something, but they'd taken off for another location, something like that. Mm. And we had to ring them and say, get back, get back, bring the snow back. And we put fake snow in to finish the scene, something like that. Uh, but all of that still worked and still made the film. So all of that be- makes it very exciting for us. <laughs> yeah. Was uh, the final scene, Oh, Captain, My Captain, was that filmed in the beginning, middle, or the end of the schedule, production schedule? It was filmed at the end. Uh, okay. But the the positions of the boys on the table standing uh, was established in pre-production. We spent okay. quite, quite a lot of time, half a day, deciding where they were when they were standing on the table so the camera could place them and see them placed uh, conveniently amongst each other to suit the dialogue or the timing of who was going to stand and who wasn't. Framing for uh, Dylan, who didn't stand, made the decision through legs so that there was a feeling that the others are there, We, we... found and then that gave us basically the position of the boys in the classroom so that when they sat down that was their position in the classroom so the continuity would for the final shot uh would be cemented and it wouldn't uh cause any problems so all of that was worked out in pre-production the film unraveled the performances and the emotion so that by the end of the film, the boys knew the whole story. So to stand at Captain My Captain um, was a done deal as to positions and emotion. And the only thing we did do on Ethan Hawke and the other boys was to cheat the cross light a little bit so that there was light and shade. On on the mm. on his face, so there was the quandary, in in represented in light, um, of the brightness of one side and the other side of darkness. Of is he doing the right thing? Am I correct? Am I wrong? So there was a little visual uh, comparison there as well. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that scene, uh, the the way you shot that scene, the final scene, Captain or my Captain, because. When when you're looking at from um, the perspective of pro- the professor John Williams character, uh, Mr. Keats, I've seen that I've I've watched that scene so many times, trying to understand how the heck did you guys put everybody together and making sure that everybody else is coming in the shot accordingly. So now it makes so much sense that it was done in pre-production because to be able to to be able to organize all that. Yeah. is not something that you can possibly do on the day of or you know on the during the production at least no i fully agree uh, and i think that's where with with uh, peter and my training from australia you shoot as much in your mind in pre-production as you can 
so that when you when you've got cameras rolling, you've got all those people involved, a lot of money, um, but also the time. I mean, to try and work that out on set would mean would have meant that the seating in the room, wherever they, you know, if you hadn't hadn't started from the end and worked back. It would have meant that there'd be confusion at the end as to where people. Yeah, of course. You have to compromise, maybe. Um, yeah. Whereas being able to think for Peter to say, "I'm going to work that out in pre-production, and then that'll cement where they sit during the whole classroom. And then we'll make the classroom work around that seating arrangement, and that's why the final scene is the power, and that's where the yeah. power of the film is really." Yeah. And I said, John, Mr. Keats, it's actually Mr. Keating. But the reason I asked you the question about Captain or oh My Captain, where it was shot in, in terms of the production schedule, because it is such a powerful scene. It's one of those scenes that you can just watch on its own and you will still get it like it will hit you at, you know, to the deepest core. As the crew was filming this as they filmed the entire film from the beginning to end or relatively to the end, was that scene impactful in terms of the story arc and just the whole performances on yourself, on the crew, the meaning and the power of that scene? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've worked with, with Peter in Australia as camera operator on Gallipoli, and he always plays music. And it'll be a music chosen for that scene. And in asking him a hundred years ago, uh, why, why the music? He said, it gives the actors the pace of the scene that I need. And the pace, how fast or slow they should play and, and, Harrison Ford on Witness loved it um, because it did exactly that. He would play it very loudly uh, right up until roll cameras, clapperboard on, clapperboard would go on, and just before action he'd turn it off and leave it ringing in the actor's ears, the pace, the music. Um, and so the, he had that with the boys the whole time. And so whilst we were watching dailies, he would play the same music in the, the dailies theatre. And I don't know, on Gallipoli, I saw the whole shooting team practically in tears as the boys went over the bunker and getting shot to pieces, um, crew in tears. Uh, at one stage, I had this lovely gaffer, uh, in, from Los Angeles, Norm, and Norm, Norm was a seasoned gaffer. You know, he was about the same age, but uh, was an L.A. gaffer and a lovely guy, uh, very excited. He did Rain Man and came across on a Dead Poets Society. And we were watching, I think it was that scene, and I'm thinking, yes, it was, because I remember when we, when we lit Ethan heavily cross-lighting him. Norm was a little worried about how dark it was on the fill side. And, and I said, no, don't worry, Norm, don't worry. But the whole thing is 
is the yin and the yang. It's the it's the cross light that we need, and we need the contrast on it. Well, okay, and he was he got a little worried about it, but in the dailies, I'm sitting there watching it, and I looked at it, and I thought, no, that's all right. That looks that looks, and I turned around to Norm to say, Norm, that looks good, and he's in tears. Yeah. And I said, the music's playing, the boys are going up there. And I said, Norm, you're a seasoned Los Angeles gaffer. You're not allowed to cry. He's like, I can't help it. He said, look at that. I can't help it. So, yes, it's a very emotional time. And Peter created that with his music, uh, which unashamedly was the mission that we were listening to. And I, I did hear later that Maurice Jarre had a, heck of a time trying to find music that had the same power in the beat because that was the timing for the boys to climb up was the yeah. you know the, the missions dum dum da, da, dum dum and that was their climbing pace and he had to find another make another piece of music which he did beautifully yeah I'm at, it, john i mean i i miss those kind of movies, the music. I mean, even another film that came out around the same time, which you weren't involved with it, it was Sent of a Woman. Uh, you know, similar kind of approach that had like with Al Pacino and Chris O'Donnell, directed by Martin Brest, I think. But yeah, I mean, those those kind of things, those kind of powerful scenes, which are just so simple, but they're executed so brilliantly that they make any, you know visual effects movie you know with hundreds of millions of dollars of budget going into the tank like it's just it's just again i mean we can talk about this all the time but there's just so beautifully done and craftily done i mean i can i can you know as you were talking about the music literally and that's how powerful peter's choice was i'm envisioning them climbing on the desk and the music building up and robin will you know Robin Williams' character, Mr. Keating, looking at the students, and the students have their hands in front of them. Like it's just such a visual scene, and you know, kudos to you to creating such a simple yet powerful imagery in that film. And the the wonderfully beautiful Robin Williams was always there on the set. Um, he he didn't just wander off and go to his motor home and and ring his agent. He, he stayed on the set a lot, just watching and listening um, to how the boys were being directed and recorded so that he was always part of the film, um, not just a, a sort of somebody who came and went to do their scenes. He was always there, very like uh, Dustin Hoffman on Rain Man who, who came into you know, pre-production and loved watching us all you know, trying to do, trying to get it together. But they're, they're the kind of actors that, are, you know, they're just so vibrant. And and in a way, that's why I've, I've really loved over the years doing films such as that, that, that get, I can get involved with with uh, wonderful actors. And it's like George Miller's Lorenzo's Oil, you know. I, I, that's another with characters that are so deeply etched uh, as characters that to try and help them stay in that part, in the role, in the character, um, and yeah. them is just amazing. Yeah, it's so true. And 
And what's interesting is, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. So Robin Williams had come into into a lot of films before Dead Poet Society, but those are all the films aside from Good Morning Vietnam, which I think came out in nineteen eighty seven. Like I. most of us haven't heard of the other films. So that was like a comedic role. Then his next major was Dead Poet Society. You know, to go from that to this, then I think he did Awakenings, and after that, Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin. Like, to have that kind of skill set where you can go from crazy, lunatic, physical comedy and, you know, the jokes to something so deep and profound... which unfortunately kind of came across in his passing almost 10 years ago now. Um, you know, what was working like with Robin Williams in terms of on the set? Was he ever comical? Like was he when the, when the things were not, the cameras were not rolling, was he doing his comic routine in any way? He was. He, he he just had to make people laugh. He he loved people laughing, and he would suddenly start into something, and it'd be something nothing, but it would be hilarious. And Peter used to sit there, and and I remember he used to you know laugh along with him, and he'd give him eight and a half minutes, and and then Peter would quietly say. Thank you, Robin, but we need to get back to work. And Robin would be, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir, sorry, sir, yes, sir. And he'd go and sit in the corner and and listen and watch while we recorded then the scenes that uh, we were there for. Um, so I think for any director, maybe he was a bit of a handful. And as you could see in the film, Peter let him go with the... With the um, the little anecdote uh, from John Wayne about the sword uh, and, and mimicking John Wayne so brilliantly. I mean, he let him go on that and he put it in the film and just gave it a little touch of, of the, the Robin Williams brilliance of, of comedy, of humour, and put it in the film as though that character did have a lovely sense of humour underneath this wonderful uh, ability to get the best out of out of the boys and the best out of life, um, but still had a, had a lovely sense of humour without letting it go to the point where it was, ah, it was just another Robin Williams film. It wasn't. Yeah. It was a, a, a Keating film and, and he was Keating. He just had a, possibly a nice sense of humour. Yeah, and it's it's so sad that uh, you know when he when he passed away. I I saw that I saw Dead Poor Society again, and then I saw the the last scene over and over again, and obviously you know you start thinking about things in a different way once a certain event happens. That last scene or the one of the last shots where he's just looking up at the boys with his you know calmness and his smile. But there was this deep sorrow inside that you could see yeah. through his eyes, yeah. And I just, I, I just felt, and again, it, because of what happened, you know, you, you're sort of inclined to think like that. I wonder if he was going through something at that time, even though that was like you know, twenty four, five years ago, because you could see something in his eyes, and whether that was acting, which I'm sure it was, but just something else was there. And I've, I've seen that in all of his performances. You look at Mrs. Doubtfire. You look at, uh, what was that movie? Goodwill Hunting. Um, you know, whole, whole lots of stuff.
Very possibly. I mean, I, I believe from what I I read and heard was that he had ups and downs. So, you know, through his life. So maybe, uh, yes, maybe possibly there's something in there. And maybe too, it gave him the depth of that emotion at that moment uh, um, to be able to draw on, uh, sadly. Yeah. And it's incredible to see Ethan Hawke have his career and now his daughter. I don't know if you've seen his daughter's performance in one. Of, I don't know which season it was that she came in Stranger Things season three, I think, or two. Uh, but yeah, she's as talented as him um, in terms of doing what she does and, you know, following her dad's footstep oh, great. Uh, because he, he was, he was fabulous in that movie. Ethan Hawke was just absolutely fabulous in Dead Poet Society. It was very interesting. The boys were very interesting. I, I know too that uh, the youngest one, I think Dylan was 17 and I think Gail was 29. So there's a heck of a, a an age difference between all the boys, but you know, Peter's method of pre-production and getting them down into um, uh, Delaware early, two weeks early, and putting them together as though they had been in school together for a couple of years rather than just gathering to make a movie, um, paid dividends all the way, that they knew each other, they, they started to sort each other out. And uh, I think that's all a wonderful part of, of Peter's ability as a director, incredible ability as a director to be able human to be able to understand human nature, um, and that's not only with the actors; it's with crew as well. Uh, that uh, he had a wonderful understanding um, on how to get the best out of them in a way, which uh, yeah. which was uh, you know quite a privilege to be able to. To, to be asked to work and help help him make films. Yeah. To to wrap things up, John, you know, the film ended up winning, I think, according to Google at least, maybe you obviously know better, best director, best picture, best actor, best original screenplay, and rightfully so. Um, do you remember the first time, whether it was through a screening, if they had test screenings at the time, or even if it was just a, a premiere or a public screening where you saw the film and you obviously feeling the way you did, most likely very emotional, but you heard the gasps or the laughs around you by people. Do you remember that experience? Oh, not really, Joe. It's a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Um, and I got involved in it, obviously, in post-production to do the... Um, the grade, the, the release print grade. One of the lovely things about the movie too is that it it was uh, on film and it was a, a time when you, as the director of photography, you were um, all the way to the end, all the way to the, to the, the uh, theatre that was screening it. Um, it was your photography that was involved with it. And I think that that was, to me, it was a lovely era of, of working with Peter, working with wonderful actors, young and old, um, working very close with those actors uh, 
as a director of photography and the camera operator, watching them through the camera, you know. Um, and a lot of a lot of things happened over the years, not with Peter, but you know, when you're watching actors through a camera, you're actually watching as a mentor of mine in the very early days told me, you're actually watching a movie. He, he through that viewfinder with a blackout um, and just a little image at the end, that's a, that's a screen and it's a movie screen and uh, you're actually watching the performances. Um, and there's a lot of things I felt that uh, uh, were gained back then because of that that have been mm. a little lost now because of possibly uh, the new digital revolution has got a blanketing of every everybody's watching it and every on little little screens all over the film sets and it's it's a different era it's a very f fascinating era I've got to say it's, but it's one that I'm bailing out of at this stage um, and and I you know I suppose I'm my, my reminiscing is that uh, there were great days. I mean, Peter wasn't watching uh, a monitor on Dead Poets. Peter would often be standing where the next mm. shot would be. And he would, uh, because we we did take one and print so many times um, that uh, you had to have a damn good reason to want another take. Because of the speed, we have to keep the speed up, move on to the next yeah. shot. And I would be with Norm, the gaffer, I would be pre-lighting the reverse while we were fussing there. The boys would be quietly putting things in there, ready ready to quickly turn the camera around and try and get the reverse in four minutes so that the actors all stayed on set, stayed in character, stayed in, in uh, performance. And that speed was all part and parcel of being able to be in control, really, of the total imaging of the, of the film. And it's an era that's gone, in a way, because so many people now can step up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a problem in the background there, we've got to go again, you know, or, or yeah. this or that. And I think as the operator, I learned very early in the piece to listen to the way the director said cut. And if if it was a, a nice sort of a lovely cut, 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 I knew they probably had the performance. Then I had to analyse a little bump in the middle or this or that, a uh, little problem there. and Oh, gosh, that didn't work too well, but director got the performance. So then I would say, okay, great, I'd say. And then he'd say, how was it for you? Because they always went to the operator. How was it for you? And I'd have to say, Great, it's fantastic, with as much enthusiasm as they'd said cut. But if their enthusiasm in, in cut wasn't there, I'd find yeah. a problem to help them along, maybe. And things like that, I thought, I thought were a very satisfying way of being a cameraman. But I've found on films now and the digital revolution, that satisfaction's not quite there anymore. And I think that also is a with some exceptions is shown in the performance because when the director is right there with the camera operator or DP and the actors are right there as well, there is that level of trust and that level of, okay, this director wants me, you know, 
cares about me and wants the best performance out there out of me. And then there's also, for the lack of a better word, a slight fear that he's right there or she's right there. I need to be on my top of my game as opposed to he or she is sitting in another room with a monitor. So it creates that pressure, but the pressure brings out the best performance as well. Well, one, a lovely recent example was with the beautiful Tilda Swinton with George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. And about two weeks in, because of the, di the digital world now means that the cameraman goes off to the DIT tent and yeah. you, light, you literally light on the DIT monitors, which are all calibrated and whatnot. Um, so you're not on set. And about two weeks in, I came back onto the set and Tilda looked at me and she said, where have you been? And I thought, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'm in trouble. And, and I said, ah, well, Tilda, I've, I've been up in the dit tent. She said, what's a dit tent? She didn't have a clue what a dit tent was. I said, it's the digital immediate, intermediate technician's tent. We're looking after you there. And I started to talk very quickly. Uh, I said, we're looking after you there. We've got, you know, we've got very large, very highly calibrated uh, monitors and we're checking colour and things. We're looking after you up there. I kept saying, we're looking after you. We're looking after you, you know. And she, <laughs> and she said, well, I, that's not what I'm used to. I I like it when the director of photography is standing be, beside the camera. And I thought, ding, there you go. That's all big part of the of an actor's security is to have the yeah. cameraman staring at them, watching every little bit of light or you know everything that's happening to them and uh, so after that I didn't go up to the dit tent I said you're on your own you're on your own and he said but I need your input I said you're not going to get it we'll do it in post don't worry don't worry so it's I, a sense of validation right yeah yeah and I thought that that is a, a little sad bit that we've lost out of the filmmaking process as we just talked uh, from the photochemical process where the director was there beside the camera, the, the director of photography was there, the operator, if they had one, uh, with all their staring at them and looking after them, basically. And now they're not there. The director's 30 feet away in a blacked-out little tent watching a monitor and cameraman's in the dit tent. Um, there's nobody there sort of that they might feel is security. <laughs> so I, I, I worry about that a little. No, I don't worry about it, but I just feel it's a loss at this stage. And I think it's gone one step beyond that now with AI coming into play. And imagine what that would, I mean, it already is, but imagine what that would do in five, 10 years when people will cherish the way they made films in the early 2000s in the mid 2000s absolutely so i yeah it's it's interesting times but nevertheless um thank you so much john for your time uh lovely talking to you as usual um Child, any, time, any, time, any film any time perfect we'll be in touch for sure thank you for your time you have yourself a great day a great weekend coming up for you you too cheers <laughs> cheers take care I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. And do come back for another episode. Until then, have a great day.